yeah i i I saw that on uh netflix and i was like oh my god this is such a lydia thing oh yeah i remember when the elisa lamb thing happened years ago oh really so it's not that uh no the elisa lamb thing happened probably when i was in high school we can save this for the podcast well that i'm already recording so this will probably become our intro thing (laughs) fair enough are you gonna do the countdown or me Oh, sure. Okay. Whatever, fuck it. Three, two, one. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to my chocolate factory. And I should warn you that one of us always tells the truth, and one of us always lies. No running in the hallway. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Hello and welcome to Dan's Labyrinth, the show where we talk about your favorite indie movies and genre films. I'm Joseph, and this is my co-host, Lydia. Hey, hi. How are you? <laughs> That's my thing. How come- I say it too every time. Why? Why do I have a need to like be sing-songy every time I say my own voice? Like this is my co-host <laughs> Lydia, and I'm always like, "Hello." Hmm. I do notice it a bit, but it's fine. You know, at least gets rid of the vocal fry for a moment. Yeah, just for like half a second. It's like at the end of the oh movie God. when I sang the end credit song for no discernible reason. Now I notice whenever my go- voice goes into vocal fry too. And I'm just like, I feel like I never would have noticed before. But from <laughs> you saying it a lot, now I've like figured out what it is. It's like, honestly, like, I hate my voice so much because of the vocal fry. Oh my God. It sounds between, good. Between Don't the worry. vocal fry and my very subtle lisp. It's like, it's like mm. just there enough that it's never not noticeable. Yeah. So what's, what's been going on it? Anything new in the last two weeks? Um, so like, yes. I mean, some of it's work stuff, so I don't know if I totally want to mm-hmm. get into that, but. No, no, no. Um, the color of my couch right now kind of looks like I've been smoking for 57 years. Yes, it does. It's really does. Right. So I'm not loving the vibe that that's creating. It's like shitty motel room vibes. Um, But soon it will be plush seal gray velvet. Nice. But yeah, I was just in a, you know, I'm still crazy behind on work. And so I just needed the bare minimum distractions sort of thing. I mean, I said the same thing to you the other day. I messaged you in like, in like a moment of mini nervous breakdown I was like, I feel oh, really, yeah. I when know. I messaged you the other day, when I was just like, I am so anxious, I'm so overwhelmed, I'm oh, so yeah, exhausted, yeah. and it's literally just I have like 18 different projects on the go, and yeah. like three to five of them are super in depth and require a lot of energy, but then I still have yeah. six, seven hours worth of meetings half the week. It's like, when am I supposed to get anything done? I can't catch up on anything. I'm getting a million ad hoc requests from people because yeah. they don't know how to do things without me. Do you think, um, like, I was thinking about this. I was, I actually, today, actually, I did a three-hour, like, work call with someone where we just worked while on call together. And it, it worked pretty well. Like, I would say about one-third of the time we spend socializing and two-thirds working, which is not, you know, the most ideal ratio. But it's, 
being able to have some of your work time socialized, like that office atmosphere, yeah, is so just like liberating. And yeah, it's not the same through um, a Zoom call or whatever. But my walks, I've been taking my walks every day for like about a month now, maybe. That's been very successful. But I've been trying to, you know, get back to normal a bit. And you just don't realize how many different things are important to your yeah. um, work day. But besides the YouTube stuff, like I did end up watching a bunch of stuff that like is kind of in like desperation and stuff like that. So I did end up watching one of the ones on our list, which was Palm Springs. Yeah. Which is when I was really. We, we have this like working list of things that we want to watch. Yeah, and we're so I'm sorry. It, and then and Joseph suggested this one, yeah. wanted us to watch it together and then fucking watched it without me. Yeah. We could have watched it today. Anywho. Yeah, it would have been a good choice for today. Uh, especially. Oh, so today we are going to talk about the house that Jack built, which was on Shutter. Yes. Um, not sure where else it might be available. It's nowhere. It's not available anywhere else. And yeah, and if you don't know the format, we are going to talk about it closer to the end of the podcast. Right now, you're going to have to deal with us talking about whatever we want. Yeah, enjoy social time, God damn it. Uh, which is Palm Springs. Uh, Andy Sandberg from Brooklyn Nine-Nine and Kristen Milioti. The mother in How I Met Your Mother. Yeah, probably most famous for that role, which I thought she was good as. Good at, and she's excellent in this movie. I really enjoyed it. It's a prime original, and I am definitely getting used to the prime original vibe. Just like Netflix movies have a certain vibe, Prime Originals, it's like, it's especially the sets. The sets are very TV sets. They they don't have much room to do different things. The, the camera use is not very epic in scope. It's always sort of intimate. That being said, it's a very charming movie. It just, it does its premise so well. Andy Sandberg is a depressed guy at a wedding, and he's hitting on Kristen Milioti's character, and she falls for him. But then at the end of the day, he goes into a cave and she follows him when he says, don't follow me. And it turns out that's because he's been in a time loop for years. And when she right. followed him, now she's trapped in a time loop. Okay. It's just an enjoyable comedy, fun sketch thing of them, you know, figuring out their relationship together and dealing with what it means to be in this time loop together. Like, does she hate him for bringing her into the time, bringing her to into the time loop or what you're seeing with him is like, maybe he can get out of his depression now that he has someone to be there with him. So like, my question is what is with this weird uptick in like temporal, like timeline themed movies lately, like weird indie temporal timeline mm -hmm. movies. Cause we've had happy the happy death, death day. day movies yeah. and then we've got this Palm Springs and prime just literally just released another one. Yes, I saw this. I saw this. I was like, what the fuck? Called the map of uh, tiny perfect things. And it's the same concept. It's just it's just like a more loving. It's like a less like I fucking hate you enemies to lovers kind of vibe where she's annoyed that he did this to her. It's more of a we get to repeat the same day of falling in love over and over again. But it's the same fucking concept. Yeah. It's like, how many times do we want to watch Groundhog Day is my question. I don't know. Because, like, I think we hit the nail on the head with the concept with Bill Murray's Groundhog Day in the 1980s. Like, I don't know why we need to repeat this. Yeah. I don't know. And Palm String is not particularly innovative. It's just the, it's a pure popcorn charm version of it. There isn't much else to it, except that it's really enjoyable. Actually, another one that's most similar to is Russian Doll. 
mm, on Netflix, yeah. the show from like a few years ago. That show is actually really, really excellent, much better than Palm Springs. Um, but Palm Springs, I still just really enjoyed. I mean, the two main actors are just so lovable. Yeah. And they just get good storylines in this. That it was exactly what I needed in the mood where I was just in a slump. Yeah. I get it being like a comfort thing. I just, I don't, I mean, I understand that cinema goes through these like phases, mm. like early 2000s, we had all of the like weird psychological thrillers, like the bone collector kissed the girls along came a spider in like the nineties. We had a resurgence of slasher movies. Like I, I get that there's, yeah, there's like trends, a, a semblance of like repetition and trends, but this isn't a trend. This is a literal concept that just is being yeah. repeated again and again. And I don't get it. It's weird. I, I don't know what to say about that, but the movie itself was uh, really good. Well, enjoyable. Yeah. Did you have any sort of comfort watches or anything? I, I, I don't know if I would call this necessarily on the same lines, but uh, I've been watching WandaVision on Disney+. Plus. <gasps> yes, yeah, so many people are talking about it. I don't have Disney+, Plus, so I have not um, caught up with it, but I definitely would. Everything I've heard about it sounds so intriguing to me. And Scarlet Witch is a very cool character. Yeah, agree. Scarlet Witch is a very cool character. And just conceptually, like, the cool, like, the show has a lot of, like, cool visuals and, like, interesting cinematography choices. But basically what's happening is each episode is a different era in sitcom television. So that's what you're going through. So you start in, like, I Love Lucy era black and white sitcoms. Um, and then you move from there. So, like, the next season is more of a bewitched feel. And, like, once you get into mm. the 70s, you're more into, like... The Brady Bunch kind of vibe. You get into the 80s. It's more married with children and family ties. The 90s is literally Malcolm in the middle. It's cra- it's so weird. <laughs> um, so it's, it's cool. Superhero aside, seeing these trends in like sitcom television play out with this sort of weird psychological space time creepy factor like it's it's much more disturbing feeling than i think a lot of Mm. the previous iteration comic book movies have been so like at first it starts out very charming and adorable and it really just feels like a recreation of an episode of i love lucy or bewitched and then as it progresses and as you know scarlet witch starts sort of psychologically deteriorating more and more there are these like glitches in the episode structure so these little moments mm. where people wake up and realize what's happening or things rewind and replay in a different fashion. And it's it's very it's got a Truman show creep factor. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So from what I understand, I've only seen little little bits of what people are saying, but I do know the, sh- the movies never showed Wanda really showing off her, like, true power from the comics. In the comics, she's actually, like, one of the most powerful beings ever, basically. Although her power is very unpredictable. Yeah, I think, she- isn't she an Omega mutant? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the one thing that's that's exceedingly frustrating to me that you see as a reoccurring theme in a lot of like superhero kind of related movies, not even necessarily Marvel, but it's like the female superhero character is insanely powerful, but her power power is entirely like contingent on her emotional stability. So like she's so powerful and so amazing, but Uh, the Phoenix effect. 
right. will go off her rocker in a second because hysterical women problems. And it's it, it's just a theme that reoccurs constantly. Not That's true. even specifically Marvel, but you see it in Wonder Woman, even with Black Widow, who doesn't have actual superpowers and is just this amazingly trained assassin. It's like, I only murder people because, you know, I was psychologically traumatized and... I no longer have a womb, so I'm not a real woman anymore. And it's like, what the fuck is this? Why can't she just be super powerful? Like, I mean, you know, you have Magneto, you have Iron Man who have their own struggles. You know, Iron Man struggled with alcoholism. Magneto was a war prisoner in the Holocaust. But their powers are never described as being unstable because of their emotional instability. That only happens to female characters, to my knowledge. And it's incredibly frustrating. Even though I'm loving WandaVision, I think it's it's weird. It has elements of sort of sci-fi and horror. I love the charm of old school TV recreationism. But it's it's incredibly frustrating. I completely agree. That's a very good take. I don't know. I just I just wish like if you were gonna do that, give me the same kind of thing in a male character, you know? So what I did end up watching was The Order season two. I went back to that yes, horrible show. That's right. Did it's you so see, bad. Did you finish it yourself? No, God, I got halfway through no, season okay. one and I was like, I can't. This yeah, is garbage. Okay. No, it it's it's definitely garbage, season two. It's, the whole show is trash. But it's so enjoyable. My God, it's so watchable. Like it's like so dumb. If you don't know The Order, it's a random Netflix show, that stupid dark academia setting. It's shittier than Magicians. Yeah. It's the worst version of that. <laughs> yeah, it's like every character is a magic user in a cult which they've overthrown their leadership, and half of them are werewolves, whose their whole goal is to kill magicians, and they're magic users themselves. And there's, like, new forces coming in from, like, all over the place by season two. Like, typical, you know, river, like, like when a storyline yeah. has, like, way too much bullshit going Very on. Very much jump the sharky. So it has all that. The transitions between plots is so abrupt. And it is the, <laughs> is the one of the most extreme versions of that, like, plot switching problem that a lot of these fast-paced teen shows have. And it's it's absurd. And all that being said, I still am just loving it. It was just a really enjoyable comfort watch. It took me so long to finish season one. I was so hot and cold on it for so long. And season two, I dropped and then came back to. Is Catherine Isabel in that? Am I remembering that right? I don't know. I don't know any actor or actress's names in it. They're they're not famous to me. Catherine Isabel is a Canadian actress who's uh, Ginger in Ginger Snaps. Okay. She's also in season three of Hannibal. You just watched a lot of trash, eh? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's. The the rest of the list is not going to get better. Correct. So. All right. Perfect. That's even better. I was going to ask, I think you were telling me that you, you were, you're trying to watch some more. You're trying to pick up a couple like intense movies or whatever. Yeah. So I'm going to name one of those. So I watched a movie called I Hate the Man in My Basement. Okay. It's a mouthful I don't know this one. of a title, um, but it's on Amazon Prime. came out in 2020. It's such a weird movie. I don't even know how to describe it. But it's very much a character study about a young man who's lost his wife. You know, she's passed on. Okay. And you find out throughout the movie that he's struggling 
you know, through his grief process, he's really insular. He's disconnected himself from his coworkers in a lot of ways. So even though he still hangs out with them, he's much more standoffish and awkward. He meets a woman and he decides, you know, he's going to try and move forward. But he's having a hard time making romantic connections without feeling mm-hmm. just wrought with guilt, like he's cheating on his dead wife. And as you go through the movie, you start realizing that his wife died from unnatural causes as a result of a crime. Okay. And that the police aren't able to find the man responsible for his wife's death. And when you get further into the movie, you realize that the police can't find the man responsible for his wife's death because he kidnapped that man and chained him up in his basement. Oh, yeah. Okay. I get it. Hence the title. Yes. And obviously you, you initially think that he's doing this to torture him for retribution. And that's a big part of it. Yeah. But as you get through the movie, it becomes this weird codependent relationship. Oh my God. Where like, even though he, he is torturing him, you know, he forgets to feed him regularly. He beats him if he gets the wrong answer. They also end up forming this like strange bond because this man in the basement has no other social interaction. He has no stimulation. There's no like TV down there or anything. So he starts giving him books and a lot of the, like the first book he gives him was his wife's favorite book. And this guy in the basement is, you know, a really young guy. He's in his early twenties. He comes from like a lower socioeconomic background He got pulled into like gang life super, super young. And you find out a lot of things about their lives and how interconnected they can be. And they start forming this crazy, super intense emotional bond. Um, And you start seeing how that's affecting the main character's personal life. And his personal life starts flourishing more, the more connected he gets with this man in the basement. So the more he starts sort of therapizing with him, wow, the more he's able to make connections with his coworkers, with his new love interest, and he starts healing. It's very very fucked up. Strange and beautiful and and kind of like emotionally disturbing. Yeah. I I wouldn't say it's it's amazing. I think it's really really interesting. Yeah. I do think it's got a very indie feel and not just from storyline, like the cinematography and camera work feels very, very like indie movie, but that has its charms mm-hmm. and the acting is quite good. So your main intake or your main protagonist and your man in the basement are played by Chris Marquette and Manny Montana. Manny Montana, I think is most recognizable from good girls. He plays Rio. Okay. I didn't see that one, but yeah, you've talked about it really fun. That's a good comfort watch actually. Um, if mm-hmm. you're looking for a comfort watch. And then Chris Marquette. I feel like everyone knows Chris Marquette from The Girl Next Door. That like super old movie from like 2004. Oh, yeah. I remember liking that movie. Yeah, with Alicia Cuthbert. But he was also in like Fanboys. He was in Just Friends. He's in the um, HBO TV show with uh, Bill Hader called Barry, which highly I love recommend. Barry. Yeah. Yeah. Highly recommend. But overall, like it's it's interesting. It's very weird and very interesting and beautifully acted. Nice. Did you finish Behind Her Eyes? No. Started last you didn't. Week? Yeah. I, did, do you plan on finishing it? Yeah, I do. Okay. 
Well, so I'm out of stuff. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, that's okay. We, we'll probably have a lot to say about the, uh, the movie, so. Okay. Maybe. Hopefully. Um, I'm gonna, real quick, super rapid fire, because I don't have a ton to say about yeah. either of these two. Yeah. I finished okay. The Sinner, season three. Right. I don't have much to say about it, because I think I said everything in a previous episode when I was about half or two, two-thirds of the way through. Yeah. If you're gonna watch The Sinner, which I highly recommend you do, first season's amazing, third season, really, really solid, second season's pretty boring very similar to true detective in that way but it's it's a little more anthological follows the same detective played by bill pullman but it's a different case each season first season has jessica beale third season your main sort of uh character is matt bomer who is phenomenal in it mm. it's just this like man basically going through a midlife crisis and reliving this weird disturbingly codependent relationship that he forged in private school in his youth and how like that fucked him up emotional, like during his emotional development. Right. And the, and you know, the crime that that leads into. Yeah. Really interesting though. And Bill Pullman is phenomenal in it. And then I also watched <laughs> crime scene, the vanishing at the Cecil uh, hotel. Yes. Yes. The documentary on Netflix. I watch a lot of true crime documentaries and honestly, like a lot of true crime documentaries can be like super exploitative for the victims okay. and the victims' families. And really think that this is very far on that side of the uh, scale oh, comparatively okay. to others. This felt like it was exploiting a horrible tragedy that befell a mentally ill young woman who did not receive the support that she needed while she was on her vacation. And there was no real like crime here. And it really like, I listened to a podcast called murder squad with Billy Jensen and Paul holes. Billy Jensen's a, a crime journalist and he has been big in the like web sleuth community for a really long time. Okay. Yeah. yeah. The web sleuth community is the same community that helped catch Luca Magnata. Who's the guy that, right. you know, murdered the um, Asian uh, international student. That was the, the, I destroy cats, right? Don't fuck with cats was the name of the docuseries. Yeah. But the, this sort of shows the, the really negative side of the web sleuth community where they can become oh. overly obsessive, uh, right. about like the most minute details. They get very deep into the conspiracy of it all. And it can really, really destroy people's lives. That whole court of public opinion right. that goes viral on the internet. And I, I honestly think more than anything, they really exploited the tragedy of Elisa Lamb. Like they spend every single episode telling you about the most ridiculous conspiracy theories, how they're certain the police are covering it up, how this woman was terribly murdered, how this guy did it, but this person did it and like the hotel's responsible. And it really all it is in the very end, and this isn't a spoiler if you followed this case at all when it happened, is a woman, a very young woman, in a new city, traveling alone, who was severely bipolar, and unfortunately stopped taking her medication, and was right. staying at a tenement hotel in a hostel-like room with other travelers who didn't give a shit about her, who complained about her being erratic and violent and aggressive, so they, the hotel just moved her into a solo room and did absolutely nothing. They didn't 
call a hospital or a social worker or her family. They just left her there, did not notice when she never checked out, and didn't find her body until 19 days later when people complained about the smell and color of the water Jesus. that they were drinking from. And it's Messed up. it's horrifying. And you have this hotel manager who is talking about how great the hotel was. It had its problems, but we really wanted to turn it around. And it's not the hotel's fault that it happened. And it's like, you didn't restrict access to the roof, a place that has no guardrails, mm. that had like that no guests should be able to access and you did absolutely nothing when this young woman was perceived as aggressive to the people that she was staying in the room with was in the lobby of the hotel yelling erratic nonsense Mm -hmm. and then disappeared and never checked out of her room i don't know it's just it's tragic and it's incredibly depressing that nobody did anything or noticed or said anything Nobody was willing to take responsibility. And these web sleuths ruined the reputation of like the police department, ruined the reputation of several people that they blamed for her murder to the point where like their names went viral online as murderers. They received death threats. Their careers were ruined. Yeah. And it's just a tragedy. It's so sad. Mm -hmm. And her family just had to relive a tragedy all over mm-hmm. again in this exploitative documentary that they weren't even a part of. Right. Like, for what? For whose entertainment at that point? Because it's not a crime. <sighs> yeah, a lot of fucked up shit there. I did I did remember something that I... So I actually... I did watch another movie this week, but it's, it's not that... Like, so I watched The Big Short. Oh, okay. I was going to say, enjoy jumping off of my, like, tirade about the problems with yeah. crime documentaries. So, yeah, I watched The Big Short, which is about the someone shorting up the housing crisis in 2008. And it's, like, an all-star cast. It's Christian Bale, Brad Pitt, Steve Carell. It was, it's, it's crazy. It's stacked. The movie itself is is not very good. Like, it's it's a okay movie, that, but I think what's... The reason it's memorable is because it really puts light on like what's happening during the 2008 financial crash or like how this short works. Um, and so I liked it for that reason. And uh, of course I was inspired to watch it because of the GameStop stuff that's been happening uh, with the stock market and trying to understand like what short selling is and like all this stuff. So, and, and I'd been th- thinking about watching the movie because people have been recommending it to me for years. Oh, this wasn't a rewatch. You've just never actually no. seen it. Yeah. Never. Oh, I never watched okay. it. I, I watched like two other financial crash movies. So I just didn't see the reason to pick up another one. I, one I really I liked Margin Call, which was with our favorite that we shouldn't talk about actor, um, Kevin Spacey. He was really good in it. That's the unfortunate thing. Kevin Spacey, regardless of anything that's happened, is a talented actor. So it is that much more fucking egregious that he's yeah. like an absolute piece of shit. And now I can't enjoy anything he's in because all I can think about is how big of a piece of shit Kevin Spacey is. Yeah. It's like his movies are great fucking irritating yeah the the way the movie looks at the 2008 financial crisis it you it just goes to show like how ridiculously unchecked the financial industry was oh yeah at that time and i'm not sure how much better it is no, now it's, not, it's really not not any better it was insane the they would go talk to people and they'd be like the numbers we're seeing for these subprime mortgages 
no banks would give these out or these things don't. So then they go to the actual places where these houses are being foreclosed and they're like, how did you get your loans? Like, what did you do? And there are people with like 10, 20 loans stacked on top of each other that they just all took out and spent it all. And they're just like, yeah, I don't plan on paying it back. And they're like, what Like, what kind of rate is it? They're like, I don't know, variable, like 40, 50%. That's not... It's like, like it's, wholly, it's insanity. That's not wholly accurate to what happened in that housing crisis. The reason the housing bubble burst the way it did was because people were being approved for mortgages well below their finance, like well above their financial means. So they're getting like million dollar mortgages that they shouldn't qualify for, that the banks are giving them at increased interest rates. And then that's exactly what I'm saying. You're saying they have 10 to 20 loans. That's not true. They're getting like the biggest thing is they were getting approved by banks for loans for mortgages. They never should have been able to be approved for one singular mortgage. And then they have to remortgage to be able to continue paying because they need to get more money back. So finally, when they can't pay it, the bank forecloses on their house and sells their mortgage debt off to collection agencies to make pennies on the dollar. And then all of these people are going bankrupt. Because all of these debt collectors are trying to get all the money back. All of that is accurately talked about in the movie. This was sort of the most extreme version where they were finding people who were buying multiple houses. Based, on, They would take like the money from one loan to down, to quote unquote down payment or whatever. And then they met the people who were doing this and they were these uh, uh, loan sales guys. I don't even know what to call them, whatever. And they would approve anything. The way that they were given like sort of free, free reign by the, by whoever they worked for. And so they, it was just insanity. And yeah, and so they, they shorted it and they made billions of dollars on the backs of, you know, the financial industry being destroyed or like the finances of America being destroyed. So, and, and it collapsed tons, like lots of uh, repercussions across the world. And it has a cute moment in the movie where they, um, they show a thing like, like, and then as you can imagine, all the bankers were jailed and all this stuff happened and uh, like all like, and the financial industry was completely rebuilt from the ground up. And they're like, and I think it was Brad Pitt narrating it. And he's like, well, of course that's not what happened. Yeah. Just immediately bailed yeah, out. Right. One person was jailed. All of them, all the banks were bailed out and one person was jailed. And it was like a low level worker who, yeah, it was, he was just a scapegoat. It was it was a very watchable movie. Again, sort of not comforting watch, but it, it's interesting. I found it weird how all star casty it was. That was one of the weirdest things. It was to very me. Like, Oscar baby. It came out around yeah. the same time as like Spotlight, which has the same vibe. I think Christian Bale was quite good in it, though. I liked Christian Bale's character, who played the actual short seller guy, Christian, Michael Burry. So I think Christian Bale is a good actor, but Christian Bale also looks like one of the biggest assholes I think I've ever seen. Mm. In a movie. And I'm sure there are like bigger dicks in Hollywood. But every time I look at his face, I'm like, you just look like such a piece of shit human being. The most I get is Matthew McConaughey, especially like late <laughs> Matthew, McConaughey. Matthew McConaughey. I get the most douchey vibes. Well, yeah, Matthew McConaughey seems like a douche Or Mark Wahlberg. Oh my God, Mark Wahlberg. Mark Wahlberg most. blinded a Vietnamese, Vietnamese yeah. guy and nobody talks about it. Besides actually being the worst. He he looks it as well. But like Matthew McConaughey seems like a pretentious douche, but Christian Bale seems like a genuine asshole. Mm. You know, like he just seems like he would be such a prick. Whereas (laughs) I feel like Matthew McConaughey would be at bare minimum fake nice to you, if not like at least Mm. moderately genuine. Yeah, I don't see. I don't like that kind of Southern charm he does. 
grosses me out. No, I mean, I it's kind of schmucky, but I don't think he would be like a dick for no reason. Mm. I think Christian Bale would be a dick for no reason. Christian Bale <laughs> seems like the kind of guy who would throw his smoothie back across the counter at like the barista mm. if she got one ingredient slightly off. That's what Christian Bale seems like that fucking guy. Yeah, that that's all I really want to to say about it. It was just like a sort of weird I just experience like, based off some real world news. Yeah. I feel like every episode lately I'm just slandering like every fucking actor <laughs> in Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I think we'll uh move into the movie after this. God, I am so critical. It's just like being such a bitch about everything lately. Yeah, so the movie we ended up watching, as we said in the title and at the beginning of the thing, was The House That Jack Built, which is available on Prime? Shudder. Shudder, shoot. Oops. <laughs> did, um, did we even say it in the beginning? I want to say we did, but I, I And I remember. think we said it was Shudder as well. So just yeah. my beautiful memory is just so just, good. <laughs> just to reiterate, yes, it's on Shudder, which if you love horror... Highly recommend. It's super cheap. It's less than 60 bucks for the entire year. Super worth it. Yeah. So I guess I'll jump in with the the pl- a bit of the plot. So it follows, to no surprise, uh, the main character named Jack. And most of the movie is very focused on him. It's pretty much a character study-ish of him. Played by Matt Dillon. He is an architect, it seems, at the beginning, at least, or at least in this No, no. Podcast. He's an engineer. Right, yeah. Doesn't it turn out to be that way? Yeah. Remember? His mother always told him, engineer is the more stable career. That's right. That's right. So I was getting confused as to what he actually was in the end. But yes, that is the story. So he is recounting at the beginning some first incidents where he found that he has some issues, uh, like psychopathic rage issues and things like this. And he ends up throughout the course of the movie becoming a serial killer and a really ridiculously a uh, high kill count yeah. serial killer. <laughs> We're seeing him perform these actions. And it, to me, has, it, the closest comparison is to the TV show Cannibal-esque vibe, where we're seeing this artistic vision uh, with his kills and his development of this desire to have more and more artistic, more and more fulfilling kills in some way. And that's the sort of trajectory the movie goes on. And so much of this movie is about creating foundation and creating structure. So you start at the beginning of the movie where you see the foundation of who he is, of who he's about to become. And then you watch as he builds that structure and every kill that he has gets closer and closer to building out this particular structure that he's trying to, to engineer. So I think that's kind of, kind of interesting right he's yeah i did not think of it that way yeah he's building both himself as a psychopath as a serial killer as a man and as an engineer um and he's trying to build this perfect house to compartmentalize himself into and he's doing this through what he considers his true artistry which is killing people yeah and it's a lars von Trierman, We, if we didn't mention i don't remember but yes it, it, and so it's there's going to be a lot of different sort of theories again to movie, but I, I will say from the get-go, it's not a fun movie to watch. Let that be no, clear. It is not at all. brutal in a very grotesque, disturbing, and unfun way. And take that how you will, but that's the general sentiment. So don't go into this for that, like, fun indie horror movie night feeling. No. You really got no. to understand what you're getting into. That being said, I wanted to get into just a bit of the 
the general feeling the movie gives from the beginning in terms of like sort of technicals. It's like Possessor, which we talked about before. It's a movie which has interesting camera things going on, a very um, vintage lens, 70s-esque feel to it. And it's set in the 70s, it seems, would you say? Yeah, I would say 60s, 70s. And the way it plays with camera, not angles, uh, but like a cinematography in, for example, it'll show a scene of him killing someone or doing something. And then it will show a weird old piece of film or a propaganda piece, weird yeah, things. Yeah, he splices in a lot of different pieces of media. Mm-hmm. Um, and he also splices in a lot of just like still standing scenes of Jack just holding up title cards. Yes. Um, yeah. To introduce, you know, like, or to to connect different stories. Yeah, as, as though his life is like an epic of chapters or something like yes. this. Yeah. And so, for example, one of these sequences of that's spliced in is about the building of cathedrals and the change to the Gothic cathedral, which is the pointed arch. And he's discussing and using his architectural knowledge to explain the why the pointed arc arch allowed gothic architecture to build much higher than architecture before and of course that's getting closer to god and there's this theme of his artistry and and his relationship to some kind of godliness what's interesting is in the kill what you're actually seeing is his in the clinical sense ocd tendencies and his inability to uh, not just keep cleaning the crime scene and, and get away with the the murder and this psychological element is played with during the splicing. You're always hearing this, what seems to be a, psych- uh, a psychologist or psychiatrist voice. I always thought of it more as like a priest, like he was his confessor yeah. Yeah, in a jail something cell, like that too. you know? It felt very much like that through the whole thing. But a, a voice in his head that sort of yeah. discussing what it is he's up to in a, not necessarily confrontational, but exactly as though he's confessing it and someone who's in a way sympathetic but in a way questioning whether this will actually be helpful to his life but i thought that might be related to virgil from the dante's inferno which is the guide into hell which sort of makes sense especially as you get to the end of the movie yeah i mean i i don't think that's i don't think that's a radical interpretation i definitely agree with you there as you get into the the climax of the film you really start seeing that sort of direction and i like the idea that it's a push and pull right it's jack not so much thinks he's guided by god but almost thinks he's he's reaching a godlike tier yes, yes. as he's going through the film and he sees these signs that he interprets as being on the right track even as you mentioned his his ocd right he gets to such a point where he almost gets caught because of his OCD, right? He almost gets caught because he refuses to relinquish control in cleaning the crime scene. But then he ends up getting away with it. He ends up getting away and he leaves a direct trail back to his lair, his like killing center. Yeah. And then it starts pouring rain and washes away the trail. And he has this interesting dichotomy with it where he he feels vindicated, like he must be on the right track. Someone's shining upon him. He's godlike and unable to be caught. But then there's almost a sadness about it. You know, there's there's almost a need to keep pushing that boundary. It's almost like he he wants to be punished. Yeah. He wants 
to be told he's wrong. He wants to be, you know, thrown into the depths of hell. Yeah. There's a point, too, where he discusses evil world leaders or evil figures in history and makes that comparison about that you remember their names, you remember their fame and, and their great works in a way of, of genocide and killing tons of people, comparing himself to that kind of thing. He's like, I'm more interested in the artistic or grandiose creation that's done by these people. And he's pointing out the evil, so he's aware that what he's doing might be construed as evil too. But I think, you know, he would be just as happy to be a Michelangelo or, you know, whoever either. Mm -hmm. But he's just saying, he's like, what matters is the highest names, the great artistic figures of history. And good and evil no longer matters for that level of self-actualization. I think you're right. And I think that ties directly into Jack's psychopathy right because he has obviously we know he has the OCD tendencies and that's confronted really early on in the film but he also has a lot of the other trademarks of what you know we would we would classify as psychopathy right he's narcissistic and egotistical he has low empathy and he has these like grandiose ideologies where he would rather live in infamy as long as as he is recognized So throughout this film, you see him both trying to build an actual literal house. He's bought a plot of land and he's trying to build it and raise it up to a point of his artistic integrity so that he is remembered. And he keeps failing in his vision because the materials won't bend to his will. They won't do what he sees in his mind, but Mm. he can get the appearance and the quality in his art that he's looking for with these human bodies. He's yeah. figured that out. So he is succeeding in his kills in where he's failing in his traditional or mainstream accepted type of artistry. And a lot of that, it feels like, comes down to blame that he has for his mother. Because the reason he went for the less artistic career path of engineering was because she told him that he had to it was the more stable option it was the more financially incentivized option so he should be an engineer and he followed through with that because she you know forced her will upon him and now he'll never be the artistic visionary architect that he dreams to be so he fulfills that need that like grandiose need for fame and recognition through another outlet, which is murder. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I completely agree with that. So much of it in like in the 60s and 70s, so many of those theories came down to it was the mother, you know, like right. it's if if a man is murdering people, it's because his his mother was abusive or neglectful and it's created this like feeling of impotence and he needs to regain control and that's such an antiquated theory around psychopathy mm. and serial killers and i feel like despite the fact that Lars von Trier never shows the mother on screen and there are just subtle moments of recognition towards her I think it's really well played across that that's, you know, that's the position he's taking behind why Jack does what he does, especially since the majority of the incidents that we see is Jack murdering a woman, right? The first kill you see is a woman a little bit older than him. The second kill you see is a woman even older than him. Uh, The third kill, 
you know, like not to get too into spoilers is more of a family dynamic. Yeah. And it's one of the, I, in my opinion, more brutal um, just because of the the long windedness of it. And then the final is a young woman who he berates and mocks and mocks her intelligence and isolates her in a very real and specific visceral way. Yeah. So I think it's interesting. You can see a trajectory throughout the movie too of more and more, I don't even want to say calculation, but elaborate more in control, yes. more contrived situations where he's really building up the whole scenario to be how he wants it to be. And that, you know, yes. his final kills are like very contrived and, and over the top. Yes. And you start with like this, this crime of passion, you know, he's been needled into it in the way that his mother needled right. him into his career choosing. And then your second is more, a little more methodical, but his need for control overwhelms him and he almost gets immediately caught. Uh, His third is incredibly contrived and it's all about family dynamics and eviscerating families. Um, And then his fourth is the most long-winded. It's a scam that presumably goes on for several days to get him to the position of comfort that he has with this woman whom he ultimately kills. Um, and then your fourth is an art piece. It's the true Hannibal moment where it's, yeah. it's not so much about the people involved in it. And it, as it is about creating the structure with what he has. Yeah. My big take on this whole thing, it's not explicit in the movie, but I think this is sort of what Lars von Trier is going for is a comparison of this whole lineage with the a, a real historical perspective with an empire-like country. And I think this is especially, like, let's take Britain because I actually think that matches to the hunting metaphor he uses for, the, like, the third kill. And this idea that originally, you know, a society has to, uh, things are a little bit more messy, you're hunting, you're gathering, you're doing things, but it isn't all machinic. It isn't all, like, um, yeah. put together and, and it isn't all gentlemanly. And so this third kill is about this idea of gentlemanly huntsmanship and the rules of the game and how to do things properly. And that's the sort of thing he sees himself as now. He's he's saying, like, I've moved past my wild and barbaric ways, and now I have rules to how I must kill and, like, what I need to do. And that's what I'll, I'll have it all be done perfectly here, right? And he makes this comparison to how hunting culture changed in, he might have been talking about Britain, but maybe just a general European idea about how they would scare off the forest and it would be this parade of trophies. And it was all very contrived, all very orchestrated at that point, right? And that, of course, leads up to the Holocaust, genocides, and whatnot, when he's talking about these grand leaders. And there, he sees himself on this path of these things, which are exactly what empires do. They can get away with more and more throughout their history due to their power and due to their control over things. But the question is, you know, when does the empire fall or like, is, you know, is it good in any way to, to reach these points? And Lars von Trier, I think as an artistic expression is not trying to necessarily give you a hard line ethical position, but just trying to show Jack's journey and like what his mind leads him to. And I would say a comparison to the psychology of a nation. I can see what you're saying there. And I don't even necessarily disagree. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really interesting interpretation. I took it more 
from the artist's perspective, though, than from like the nation and empire's perspective, where the artist is in school. Yes. And yeah, the artist is in school, has learned the technique and is very formalized and specified in how they create their artwork. But it's never seen with any through any lens of greatness. Right. It's just a mediocre standard interpretation of art. And as you leave behind you know, the standard practice of thought or standard uh, concept of what is mental stability, you find new avenues and new pathways of expression, right? You you go into the existential with your artwork, and that's when you're seen as a true great artist. And you see that with Jack, where he leaves behind his OCD tendencies and his need yeah. for control. He stops caring about whether or not he gets caught, and ultimately getting caught becomes part of the goal. Right. Because the only way to live in true infamy, to be seen with artistic integrity is for him to get caught, is for his work to be seen. So he starts submitting photos of his work, of his right. of his murders to newspapers so that he he starts getting recognition. So people start knowing who he is. He creates a name for himself that can be recognized, that people can speak with fear. Because they know what he's done and they know what it looks like. And he starts leading trails back to his lair, back to his back to his clues and his crimes and his dead bodies. Um, and ultimately, his only escape is through some metaphysical form of death yeah. and going to hell where he'll forever be recognized for what he's done. Even in that apex moment where he has the opportunity almost to either Go to a complacent form of hell that won't be even a quarter of what's what the worst get of what the ultimate horrors mm -hmm. uh, receive as eternal torture. He takes the option to go back and do it again, essentially, to try and start over and reach that penultimate or become a god, mm -hmm. knowing that it could mean ultimate and true torture and i think that's because his real goal is the ninth circle and he was dissatisfied with the fact that he got caught only reaching like the third circle of hell yeah. Yeah. he will never be recognized as one of the worst of the worst or one of the best and most true artists for what he's done because he died too soon he died before his vision could be truly realized so he has to either go back and start over or at least thrust himself into what he doesn't deserve. Yeah. And I think if I'm being honest here, uh, it's, it's one of the, you know, delusions of grandeur is one of the biggest, I think, difficulties in my own psychology. And I don't think I have nearly as much psychopathic tendencies, but it's, I think so many of us, no one's going to want to listen to this podcast now. Yeah. I think so many people today, it's, I've talked to friends about this is that, you know, we, we often compare ourselves on the world stage now, right? If you want to just be good at art, it's so hard to be like, I'm one of the great artists of my local hometown. And it's like, that means you're better than, you know, 10,000, 20,000 people. And it's like, that doesn't feel like any kind of recognition, though, in our global scale. It's so hard to see yourself as a meaningful recognition, right? So ambitions just have to get higher and higher. And I think I what, a person said this to me, and I think this was very true. I think that you have a very greedy mind and it's a very simple statement, but I think that is one of the difficulties, obviously in Jack's life, but in my own, that it's like this idea of ambition and greed, it's what is so toxic in so many of our lives and leads to terrible choices like Jack's. He cannot just accept the safe bet 
of staying in this third circle of hell, right? Just being regularly yeah. tortured, right? He'd rather risk it all for the worst type of torture because that would at least that would mean he made he had the most fame. He went for yes. that ambitious. He he exactly. took a shot, and it's an it's a very toxic mindset, and it's like how can we learn to live? in a more reasonable state of mind, in a more reasonable uh, life and not compare ourselves and not look for that massive grandiosity. You know, it's a sort of simple takeaway in the movie beyond the fact that obviously being a psychopathic view of that. Yes. Well, and that's the thing. It's almost hard to be judgmental of those circumstances, right? It's it's hard to look at something like, you know, oh, you want to be big on Instagram or, oh, you want to be, you want to be a singer. You want to be a movie star. It's hard to look at that through the lens of like toxicity, even though you know that in a lot of ways it can be there. Not saying that that person is necessarily a terrible person, but it really is easier to get that message across when you're looking at it through the lens of psychopathy, when it's like through the lens of the worst possible version of this kind of addictive uh, toxicity. It's really easy to be like, oh, yeah, no, that's like markedly bad. And if you can connect that back to your own traits, you can see like, okay, obviously I'm not murdering people and turning them into like elaborate structures. But there there are ways in which I can relate to this character that are definitely problematic because it's such an abhorrent character, you know, and I, I feel like. In a lot of ways, a similar message is gotten across in movies that I find relatively similar, like American Psycho. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, there's more subtlety there because, you know, you get the end experience of, oh, it was just a hallucination. Mm -hmm. Right. So it almost washes the slate clean and then you lose the effectiveness of that message. Uh, Whereas in. In the house that Jack built, you know, you get to the end and it's just like the worst or best possible outcome for this character that you could imagine. And you're like, okay, so there is really no redemption here. He got exactly what he wanted and it was the worst possible version of what anyone could want. Now it's time to evaluate what that means. If I can relate to this character. Going back to the viewing experience in general, you know, we had to turn, turn away during, or at least I did during yes. certain parts of the movie. Oh, I did. It, 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 it's so brutal and so gross. And I, I'm not sure exactly what Lars von Trier's intention was or like what the viewing experience is, but I, I wonder to myself, I'm like, the movie's just not enjoyable. And so I'm like, it's really fun to talk about this movie. And there's so much theorizing. There's so much interesting things going yes. on in the movie, but it's so hard to watch. <laughs> there's a lot to unpack. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack. There's a lot to analyze. I think it's it's a really interesting film to watch if you are interested in film criticism but it's not a it's not a good movie to watch. It's not fun. And I think that that's true of a lot of Lars von Trier movies. I don't really feel like yeah. Lars von Trier as a director makes films for any kind of entertainment. They're not there to be enjoyed. They're analytical pieces. They're like philosophical conversations, but they are not enjoyable. And there are a lot of directors who do similar things like Lynch or um, Cronenberg, where you're having sort of an academic kind of philosophical conversation in this film. It yeah. is very much an art piece, but there is more enjoyment in there, even if it's difficult. You have the ability to kind of be entertained. Like Twin Peaks is yeah. objectively entertaining. Yeah. Videodrome, you may not like it, but it's objectively entertaining. But... Von Trier takes it to another level where he's completely eliminated the entertainment factor out of film and has turned it into a full-blown 
criticism piece. It's like deep and intense philosophical fiction that's hard to read and ultimately not enjoyable, but is very interesting to dissect and critique and and take an educational stand on. I think, too, it's very the cis white man perspective, the whole goal of the movie is a discussion about that, right? There really aren't female characters who are fully embodied agent characters given their full own storyline in yeah. the, in the movie. There is no people of color. Uh, or there's a couple, yeah. but like they're not relevant to the story overall. Right. It is. Yeah, they're relatively negligible. Just another one of these movies like taxi driver, like the Godfather yeah. that is very much meant for this <laughs> kind of. I mean, again, like every Lars von Trier movie is very yeah. much the same, like other than maybe nymphomaniac and really nymphomaniac feels like a white man's perspective on what female sexuality is. And it's a little gross, but I, I mean, I don't disagree with you. I think you're saying everything that's true. It's very like straight white man problems kind of conversation. I think it's interesting and it's, that doesn't diminish the fact that I think it's a valuable watch if you're interested in film criticism. Yeah. But I think you need to be careful if the only reason you're interested in film criticism is for the Lars von Triers and the Quentin Tarantinos. And, you know, you're you're missing the deeper message behind something like American Psycho or Fight Club. And you're just taking like the grandiose kind of traits from it. I, I think you're missing some of what the best of film can offer if you're not integrating different types of messages but I still think that this is a valuable movie to watch. So it's it's sort of a fine line. You need to be careful that you're not only watching these really deeply steeped white male perspective movies yeah. that may not be relatable to a significant portion of the population. Um, and I think that's something I, I, I struggle with as a woman. I mean, it's, it is hard to find films that are generally accepted as like high film or high cinema um, that aren't a white man's perspective. And I think that's that's similarly true if you're interested in, in literary criticism. Yep. It's exceedingly difficult to find anything from any other perspective. Unfortunately, from like an academic stance, the white male lens is still like the generally accepted lens to criticize from. And I think there's a lot of opportunity to, to look past that. If I remember correctly... Um, the American Film Institute's top 100 movies list from 2007, which is what my the podcast I like um, discusses. It is uh, one female director on the entire list, right? Like yeah. the the large history of film is just dominated by that uh, those biases. And I think I I have a lot of feelings about that, and I think it's dangerous for a lot of things. I think it's dangerous from the perspective. That for whatever reason, many people think that women and people of color just don't create good cinema because of lists like this, because of the Hollywood standard, because of what's recognized in in like the Academy Awards, for instance. Yeah. Um, and I think it perpetuates this consistent need to Americanize film to make it consumable for American audiences to give it true value on a world stage. Um, and what I'm what I'm specifically thinking of is that there's now in consideration um, an American remake of Train to Busan. Mm -hmm. And Train to Busan is a phenomenal South Korean movie. It is a zombie film and a horror movie, but it's so much more about a character and relationship study, and it's incredibly beautiful. And there's an interest in making a U.S. remake. 
Do I have an inherent problem with U.S. remakes? No, absolutely not. But do I think it perpetuates the message that the only cinema of value is cinema that comes out of Hollywood and is specifically relatable to white American people? Yeah, I do think that's like heavily problematic of a message. And we're seeing it constantly. I mean, we had a huge boom of Japanese cinema being remade in America in Mm -hmm. the 2000s. And almost none of it is of value. And it creates this this sort of weird echo chamber where people will watch the American remake and don't like it because it's not good. There's no heart and soul put into it. And then they assume that the original content it's based off of is twice as shitty as the American remake because American movies elevate foreign cinema. So it it must be worse if the American version is bad. And that's that's a really harmful message. And I don't I don't really know what I want to say about that in relation to the house that Jack built, but I think it really stems in the same way from the concept that like the white male lens is is more important. Um, it's the same kind of weird misogyny and bigotry um, that we see that, you know, elevates things like taxi driver and and fight club above foreign cinema like parasite you know it's the same it's the same mentality that makes people angry that parasite won best picture and not just best foreign film yeah i'll say my like my big twist on this on this conversation that i that i think about is i think what's so difficult about it is that let's say you're making a gangster movie so you have people like scorsese and whomever else who have made uh, coppola who've made all these movies, right? So if you make one that's just derivative, and let's say no one knew about those historical movies, right? But just derivative of them, you'll probably make a pretty decent movie because you have all this to build off of. All these tropes, all these things that people have liked in the past. Mm -hmm. I think one of the difficulties is when you're trying to do truly original, innovative stuff from different perspectives, it becomes harder to reference that history because if you want to reference Westerns or you want to reference noir or you want, these are all going to be dominated by the white male perspective and making your own version with your own history and your own tradition, right? It doesn't have to be fully your own or fully original. You can still take general filming techniques and all these things. But it's it's much more difficult to just do an imitation that feels valuable on your own right. And so, of course, on some high flutin objective level of like what the Oscars are going to award or what these awards are going to award, there's going to be a derivative uh, mafia film, a derivative Western, right? Because they have these traditions that are still pretty good. Yeah. And then when they're up against these new movies, these innovative ones, they're going to have some rough points and they're not going to always put out a home run. And that's frustrating because it's like, yes, in a certain way, you're, you're not going to get the award this year, but that's only because they've had a hundred years to build up a certain thing against yours. And I think that's where the, or one of the places where the conflict is so frustrating because it's just a matter of historical disadvantage in, in a tradition that I think is so I mean, frustrating. Yes. In part, I definitely agree with you on that. But then you also see these American filmmakers being inspired by or, mm. or um, taking elements of foreign cinema 
and then winning awards for it. But that yeah. same foreign cinema is not being recognized in Absolutely. those same awards. That's fucked up. That's weird because you're completely erasing a history of cinema that exists outside of America. That's what I mean by the echo chamber. It's, it's this weird perspective that the only film in North America, anyway, that the only films that have any true intrinsic value are films that are produced by or released by Hollywood are films that have the yeah. Hollywood stamp of approval on them. And that's simply inaccurate because you're erasing a history of, of say, Giaio films out of 1970s Italy. And you're release, like you're erasing the super interesting and, and psychologically explorative films of Japan, where you have these amazing horror films and amazing psychological films that, that stem back years. And like South Korean cinema that really delves deeply into um, class structure, which is wholly relevant to the American experience, but completely disregarded almost every time. And even British cinema um, and European cinema that's that's slightly more elevated and, and mm-hmm. is seen as just a little bit better as other foreign cinema, it's still not recognized in the same way as American-made media, unless it has an American production company behind it. Or it was filmed in some way in America, and then it can be recognized by by the Americans. And it's and it's just strange to me that like I understand we've given America this this world stage where so much of our pop culture influence comes out of there, but it's become this sort of dangerous echo chamber to me where not only is it like the white male perspective anymore it's the white american male perspective is like specifically what's valuable and i i i felt like at one point we were beginning to turn away from that you know you were seeing more more cinema and television written produced by or starring people of color and women directed by women etc but then you know bong joon ho sweeps the academy awards and that's amazing but the only thing you're hearing about it from like critics is that a foreign made film shouldn't win best picture. It should only win best foreign film. And it's like, I feel like we're beyond that at this point. We're over that. That shouldn't be a thing anymore. Because, because the title of that, that award is not best American film. Yeah. It's just best film. So if you're not trying to say that it's an echo chamber because you recognize foreign cinema in a separate category, you're fucking lying because the title isn't best American made film. The title is best film. And you refuse to acknowledge that the best film might have come out of somewhere other than your own country. Absolutely. It's it's ridiculous how much movie culture is dominated by America in particular, like especially if you compare it to something like books. Right. Of course, most people in America and Britain read most, mostly non-translated English books from Britain and America. But it's not as though when they get a translated book, they think of it as some kind of like foreign and possible beast or whatever, right? Like, I don't even know how many people knew that, for example, uh, the uh, like how many of uh, these Swedish crime books are actually translated or whatever, right? Yes, so it, many. You know, it's, you know, I think I think most people know that Murakami is translated, but like there is a ton of popular works that I'm not even sure people know are translated, right? But when it comes to movies, like everyone knows, right? Like it's like you you know if if it's an American movie or not, and it's it's because dubbing doesn't give the same kind of illusion that yeah. um, things does, and so there's a technical problem there. But when you consider the perspective from other countries where they have to dub all American movies into their language, it's really curious what their experience would be in well, general, and, and like. Here's the thing, I, on a personal level, 
if all you're ever for is just general enjoyment and entertainment, do I think you're missing out on a lot by not watching foreign films because you don't want to read subtitles? Yeah, I do. But am I going to give you shit for that if your like, biggest excitement about what's coming to cinema is the latest Marvel movie? Probably not. You're not really the person that I'm talking to because most people who love Marvel recognize that Marvel is one of the most entertaining franchises, but that doesn't make it the best movie or the most like intellectually valuable film. But when you're talking about something from like a true, deep, academic kind of critique of something to completely invalidate yeah. submissions from other countries is so narrow minded and like really deep seated in racism. And and the Hollywood tradition is another thing that just they, they've had the studios. Lots of countries have deals to like be importing these movies. Right? Of course. But we do have things somewhat changing bollywood is becoming bigger china has gotten a lot more influence in hollywood and there's a lot more of a back and forth with what kinds of movies will be made whether for good or for bad i'm not necessarily these but it's certainly opening the world stage in ways and it has to be a frustrating kind of awkward sort of stumbling because of how much hollywood has dominated that field yeah. it's very hard for other countries to bring their movies to the masses and for other countries to get excited or for their markets to get really excited when they can easily just keep importing random Hollywood movies and just dub it mm -hmm. easy, you know, and you don't have to build these big studios in your own country. But that tradition needs to change. I agree because the entire world doesn't need to be like pushed down under the weight of American nationalism. Like we don't all need to be in every country. Woo, America's the best because that just doesn't like apply to any of us, right? We don't live there. So it's not applicable to think that like some random country, wherever you are on the globe, is that much better than where you actually live. That's a depressing concept. And like hearing messages that more directly relate to your day-to-day -day life is important and it's interesting. And American populations understanding perspectives from other countries in the world fosters a greater like global alliance. So I, I just, I don't know. Nationalism is a weird and uncomfortable thing that is so pervasive in American media. And I think it's just, it's getting to a point where it needs to die. I was reading an article about Netflix actually on this sort of topic and how Netflix really tries to push its diversity stats are, are pretty good, are usually a little over industry standard. And wh what they put on screen, you know, Bridgerton and these things, they're really attempting or at least open to uh, a more diverse sort of palette. And they do have quite a few, like if people are interested in Korean dramas, they have a lot of those. Anime, they pick up a ton of. They've got a lot of Bollywood. Yeah, they they try to allow for things. Now, are they still dominated by American? Of course. Of, you know, that's still true. But I think I'm glad to hear that they're at least trying to work. Now, is this just a business decision? Is this just how where things are going, trending, right? And they're not, I'm not saying they're not necessarily trying to be an ethical company. I'm just saying that no. it's good in a general scope of things, whether a business decision or not, that things are opening up in this direction. I think, too, that Netflix recognizes that there are so many streaming services available in North America now that, like, if they don't diversify their portfolio in some way, they, they no longer are the standout kind of streaming service. Yes, their platform is incredibly intuitive and it's, very, it's way more user-friendly than almost any other streaming service. They've definitely perfected that. 
but like they're available in almost every country across the globe and they're one of the only streaming services that i'm seeing really capitalizing on the fact that their market is so broad and so diverse by trying to bring in all of these you know foreign feature films um so that every nation a can see you know things from different cultures which is you know, interesting, but also every nation has representation, right? So if you live in Mexico, there are Mexican films and television shows on Netflix, available Mm -hmm. on Netflix. But if you want to watch American TV, it's there for you as well. If you want to watch something from Denmark or Sweden or Germany, it's there. You want to watch Korean dramas and get like, and you really, really love K-pop and stuff like that, that's available for you. So it gives you a lot more options if you are, you know, a new immigrant to a new country, or if you just want to watch stuff from your own country and not be bogged down by like literally every piece of media made in America from the last 150 years. And I think that's especially important when you have Disney+. Plus. It would be so good if we had a VPN sponsorship right now. Oh my God, I know. Just go right into that. <laughs> I know. Talk to us. We've like stopped talking about the house that Jack built yep. at this point and have so like deeply. And look, I'm not saying the house that Jack built is the greatest conversation starter for a need for diversity because it's, you know, a white male director. The whole thing is a white man's lens. Well, that, but, that is why it's a conversation starter, is that we're admitting it's a good movie, but why that's still a problem. Also, Lars von Trier has had some, like, very strange controversies publicly, has been banned from Cannes Film Festival multiple mm. times, has made, like, weird off-color comments that hinted him, like, being yay Nazis. So, God. like, he's definitely a heavily problematic person, and I think you really do need to understand that, despite the conversation that we're having. Lars von Trier is not necessarily a great person. I think that comes through pretty clearly in a lot of his media and his need for, like, aggressive shock value. Yeah. But I, I think it's important to understand that, like, this separate the art from the artist thing that kind of shit just doesn't really fly anymore because it's it's pretty clear that the that the artist is putting in at least some of their supplemental views into the content that they're creating so i i just think while there's value in what they're creating a lot of times you need to be critical of the fact that those viewpoints, those problematic things about the person, they're deep-seated into the content they're creating. And you can see it with with Joss Whedon as well. We can have that conversation too. I'm a big, big Whedon-verse stan, but you go back and watch Buffy and you can see the problematic behavior in there. You can see the, like, I'm a feminist for show kind of shit seeping in just under the surface. And you need to you need to have that critical lens. You can still love that content, but you need to be understanding that this is not perfect. I mean, you can see in the house that Jack built a reflection on John, uh, John um, Lars von Trier. Lars von Trier in the sense of this: what are you allowed to get away with as an artist for fame or for legacy yes. or for things like this? And that's you know exactly what we're talking about. And that feels like Lars von Trier. That feels like Lars von Trier's whole career trajectory is like, how much can I get away with? How much shock value for the sake of art can I shove into my work and make it like weirdly atmospheric and esoteric enough that like people will let me pass or let me win awards for it? And and I'm not even trying to devalue what he's doing. He's created some really interesting, like critical works, but... I think he does in a lot of ways 
try to use the stamp of artistic integrity to get away with fucked up shit. And in this one, specifically, almost all of the really hardcore violence is directed so viscerally at women. Yep. And I really feel like this is the one where he was like, this is the apex. Let's see if I can get away with <laughs> this. Yeah. You know? And he almost didn't. He almost didn't. People walked out of his career. Film critics, whose only job it is to watch the movie end to end, fucking walked out at the midway mark and lambasted him and have refused to give up the criticism that his shit was disgusting and they will never watch it and they will never, ever consider it art. And I don't know if I think that's good or bad because your one job is to sit and watch a movie no matter how like weird and fucked up you think it is. But at the same time, I do think... There should be a line like you can criticize somebody and not let them get away with it, not let them get away with their egotism and their narcissism and their need for praise, no matter how despicable they are. Yeah. Well, with all these, how much we got off track, we seem to land at the station uh, by the end here. I think I, I reeled us in. I, you know, I think we did sort of not talk about as much the the acting or some basic stuff, but it was a very theoretical film. So I think that's sort of what yes. came across I, most. I think despite the fact that it is a deep character study, I don't think the acting is really as important. That being said, I think everybody in it was great. All of your, your secondary characters, Uma Thurman, Riley Keough were fantastic in it. They did a really excellent job. And I think this is probably the best I've seen Matt Dillon in years. And Matt Dillon is an excellent actor. He was in the outsiders and he was in, um, Reservoir Dogs. He was Mr. Black yeah. and he was phenomenal in Reservoir Dogs. So hot Dogs. when he was young. Oh my God. It's so Oh, unreal. so hot when he was young. It's just like, and he's still not bad looking. No. Like he, I mean, it's really hard to see him as attractive in this movie because it's super messed up, but he is still a good looking man. Um, but the acting was strong, but this movie, it's not a movie that's elevated by tremendous acting. And I don't think it's a movie that would be aggressively diminished if the acting was subpar. Because so much of it is uh, is about imagery and trajectory and, you know, weird theory. For sure. So to wrap up our usual, I'm not going to actually don't know all the things. So let's try it. Our yes. uh, Twitter is at FansLabPod. If you want to follow us there and you can find our individual Twitters there as well. We also have an Instagram and a TikTok which Lydia will give you the names of. Yes. Our Instagram is fans underscore labyrinth. And our TikTok is fans labyrinth pod. We'd love to see you there. Yes, please. I'll be posting a poll soon ish. I might've already done it. Hopefully not. I don't know when this comes out. Well, I mean, this is going to be posted way after the poll, but I will be posting polls regularly though. Um, asking for your recommendations on movies so you will have an opportunity to, you know, give a shit for our movie, our movie opinions. And you get sort of behind the scenes of the types of movies we're, we're sort of looking to yeah. look at. All right. Yeah. Thanks for chatting. Thanks for chatting. Yeah. Loved your conversation. You really brought nothing to the conversation, but I appreciate you listening so intently. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's what I want out of a friend. <laughs> Um, thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.